Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church. Uh, wherever you're joining us from, my name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you today as you tune in. Um, I wonder how many of you are car people. I would be the first to admit I am not a car person. I don't know much about cars. I remember being very excited the first time in our lives after I had finished school and got my first job out of college that I could actually pay a mechanic to fix my car instead of going straight to YouTube. Uh, one of my favorite or maybe not so favorite memories with our car uh, was back when Jaleesa and I, my wife, first got married. Um, it was our first summer kind of being married, getting to live out all those dreams, all those excitements, all those kind of things together. And we decided we would go on kind of our first big road trip together. Um, at the time, we were driving a 2003 Oldsmobile Alero that was held together by prayers and duct tape. It was a terrible little car that we loved very deeply because we were given it for free. I was a broke college student. Jaleesa was working to put me through my master's. And we decided that our big holiday would be to take this car and drive it down through Seattle to the Oregon coast and then spend some time in Portland, the land of great food and great coffee. It was our first big trip together, and we went, and it was incredible. We got to see amazing things. Uh, we got to eat amazing food, drink amazing coffee, all that kind of stuff. I have amazing memories of that trip. But what ended up happening on that trip with this 2003 Oldsmobile Alero is about partway through the trip, we noticed that every time the car came to a stop and started going again, there was this huge lurch forward. There was kind of a clunk, almost as if, if something was dropping or not working quite right. And I, at the time, did not handle it very maturely. I was incredibly panicked. I was stressed out. I was sure that our car was going to break down and we'd be trapped in the United States forever. We'd never make it home. The car was going to blow up. We were going to die. Everything that could be going wrong must have been going wrong in the car. So I did what any thoughtful, mature 22-year-old man would do. I started Googling, what does this sound mean? What do I need to do? How do I fix this thing? I started opening up the hood, pretending like I knew what was going on, even though I didn't have any idea what was going on. There was all sorts of things I did, and Jaleesa, she remained a little more calm than I and said, we'll get it checked out at a shop, we'll figure out what we need to do, we're going to be okay. But I remember walking through this whole trip with all this stress and all this anxiety around what was happening with our car. It's not working the way it's supposed to. And when we got back to Canada, we limped it back over the border and we took it into a shop. And, and what that shop ended up telling us was that we had put in our car a bad batch of gas. It turns out that going to the gas station in the States that is that little bit extra cheap was not maybe the best idea for our old and struggling Oldsmobile Alero. That in fact, the gas that it put in had something in it that meant our engine was not running the way that it was meant to. And the sounds that we were hearing, the issues that we were having, all those things were caused by the wrong type of gas being in the car. There was nothing wrong with the components. There was nothing wrong with the car in and of itself. But what we had put into it did not allow it to work as it was meant to. And for many of us, that is the case with our faith and our walk with Jesus. Here's how author Dallas Willard breaks down this idea. He says, if your neighbor's having trouble with his automobile, you might think he got a lemon. You might be right. But if you found out that he was supplementing his gasoline with a quart of water every now and then, you wouldn't blame the car or its maker for not running or for running in fits and starts. 
You would say that the car was not built to work under the conditions that had been imposed by the owner. And you would advise him to put the appropriate kind of fuel in the tank. After some restorative work, perhaps the car would run fine. We must approach our current disappointments about our walk with Jesus in a similar way. It too is not meant to run on just anything that you may give it. If your walk with Jesus does not work at all or only seems to be working in fits and starts, perhaps that is because you have not given ourselves to it in a way that allows our lives to be taken over by it. Perhaps he continues, we've never been told what to do. We're misinformed about our part in eternal living, or we've just learned the faith and practice of some group that we've fallen in with, not really the way of Jesus himself. Maybe we've heard something that's right on with Jesus himself, but we've misunderstood it, that we've become Pharisees or legalists, a really hard life, or perhaps hearing about the way of Jesus, we've heard about it and it seems just too costly. And so we've tried to supplement or economize or take back supplying a quart of moralistic or religious water to our tank of gas. And in each one of our lives, so many of us experience moments or seasons where our faith comes alive, where something happens and it just clicks. We learn something new in a sermon or we attend a conference or a camp. We have a moment in worship or in prayer with our community group. Somebody speaks into our lives a word of encouragement that changes how we understand and sense God's presence in our life. And those moments are so important. But for everyone that I know, the challenge is really simple. Most of us do not live in a state of perpetual moments such as this. The moment where everything clicked, where you experienced and accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior was a beautiful, amazing moment. And yet it's been a challenge since then. I get to see this all the time working with our youth and our young adults, that there's these times, these places where everything clicks, but then life gets hard. We face trials. We experience heartbreak and disillusionment. Someone close to us who we were meant to trust hurts us and it reflects poorly on God or the church or Christ himself. And through our series over the last few months, looking at the book of Romans, we've gotten to explore that very real tension that Paul talked about to a church in Rome of people figuring out what it looked like to follow Jesus through the midst of the good, the bad, and the ugly that we've gotten to hear about this battle as we've called this series between the flesh and the spirit, not just to believe the right things, but to actually have them change our lives. I think we need to be careful. It is a false assumption that we as Christians sometimes make that the reason people walk away from their faith is simply because they're immature and they want to sin. That that the only reason someone would ever walk away from church, that would ever walk away from Jesus, is is they just want to do what they want to do. They don't want anyone to tell them what they do. Uh, They don't want any authority. They just want to sin and do what they want. But Jesus himself tells us in the parable of the sower that there's many different reasons. There's multiple different reasons that people aren't able to grow up in their faith, whether it's blocked out or choked out by the weeds, whether it is the sun burning up the growth that happens. That seed is scattered and begins to grow, but all sorts of things prevent that growth. And we find ourselves in places where we start to look at our faith. We start to look at our followership of Jesus. We start to look at our discipleship and we we say things, maybe not out loud. 
Like maybe not loud enough for anyone to hear, but in our hearts, like it's just not working. Like I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to get over this sin. I'm trying to be a good disciple, but it's just not working. We say things in our hearts, maybe not out loud. This doesn't feel like it used to. Like I was sure that I believed this when I was 17 and I had that moment, but, but now I'm here and it's hard and I'm struggling and I can't get over this sin and, and it just doesn't feel like it used to. Or we take our morals and our rules and we start to beat ourselves up. We start to tell ourselves, I'm just not a good Christian. Like, like I'm not doing well enough at this. The right things are believed and, and, and the car, the vehicle of our faith is there. We do all the stuff, we attend church, we're in a small group, we serve, we give, all those kinds of things, but it's not running the way it's supposed to. Because unless the right fuel is added, it does not matter how excellent the components or the motor or the small group or the church that you are a part of. It doesn't matter how new the tires are, how tuned up all the components are. If you don't have the right fuel, the car will not run. And that's why Romans 8, where we'll explore more today, is such a beautiful passage. In the book of Romans, it acts as almost a hinge point from the first seven uh, chapters into the rest of the book of all that Paul has been, been trying to say. Beginning in Romans 1 to 3, Paul is building this case. What is sin? What does it mean to be an enemy of God? What does it mean that we are separated from God by our sin? Building up this need for us to call out and say we need a savior and then showing us that Jesus himself is life, death, and resurrection is the means by which we can be saved. That Jesus himself is our savior. And in Romans 8, we get to this point where we've heard about our sin, we've heard about our Savior, and it becomes about the Spirit. And how the reality of the gospel, this good news that Paul has given us, actually leans us into not just information that changes our minds, but actually transforms everything about our life. Interestingly enough, in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in 27 verses. So clearly, Paul wants us to catch this. Here's how Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones described this core chapter as maybe the most important in all of Scripture. He says, it is one of the brightest gems of all. Someone has said that in the whole of the scriptures, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collections of stone is Paul's epistle to the Romans. And that of these, it is chapter eight that is the brightest gem in this cluster. That the most moving chapter in Romans is chapter eight because it's the hinge point between all that Jesus has done, all the work, all the theology that we desperately need to understand and believe and how that translates into our life. And so if this passage, if this section is such a hand point to getting the right gas, the right fuel in the car of our faith, let's dive into it. Starting in Romans 8, verse 12, Paul writes this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. Now, first question that comes up there, what does Paul mean, obligation to the flesh? Like we've spent time, we did a whole series, we called it sin. Even in this series, we've looked at this idea of what sin is and how it's at work in our lives and all these kinds of things. How we give in to brokenness, we give in to lawlessness, we give in to our temptations and our desires. But what does it mean to have like an obligation to the flesh? 
Like nobody wants to sin. Nobody wants to do the wrong thing. People don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to do the wrong thing today. Well, St. Thomas Aquinas actually breaks down the enemies of our faith in Jesus into three categories that have been used across church history since he talked about them. Three categories of our enemy, three categories that push against our faith in Jesus, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, of course, all those forces outside us the brokenness that occurred in Genesis 3, all those things societally, culturally, that are pushing against our faith in Jesus, the flesh, our sinful nature, the desire that you and I have to do what we want and ignore what God wants. And of course, the devil, the enemy, the Satan, who lies to us and seeks to deceive us and draw us away from the God who loves us. But what you'll notice and what Paul is speaking to here is the flesh. Why? Because the world and the devil are both realities that are outside of us. You cannot control what happens in the world. You cannot control what the devil tries to speak and lie to you. But our flesh is the problem that exists within us. In Genesis 3, when the serpent comes to the woman and lies to her and tells her that God is holding out on her and, and tries to give her, give her this lie to set her into sin. We read this about what Eve saw. Genesis 3, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. Like you ask the question, if everybody knows we don't want to sin, why do we sin? Because sin looks good. He saw that the tree was good for food. It looks attractive. Oftentimes the things we know are bad for us looks really good. And even still that the tree was good for food, it feels good. It tastes good. Much sin in the moment feels wonderful. If you talk to someone who's had an addiction, that the alcohol on their lips or the drugs going into their veins feel great for the moment, the high of that sin, the high of whatever it is that you are doing that you know you not ought to do, the thrill or the rush of doing something that you know would get you in trouble if you were found out, in the moment it feels good. And because the devil is a liar, it also promises good. That, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Eve falls into this trap, this lie that the devil gives her that, that actually it's gonna be okay, that sin can live up to expectations, but it can't. And our flesh, what's inside of us, what's broken inside of us wants things. Even things we know in our heart and our soul are not good for us. The neuroscientist, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz actually wrote this. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is a reality when you look at habits which are bad for you. He says this, Neither should your body be indulged and catered to its every whim. Why? Because the more you pamper and submit to its desires, the more they will grow into insatiable cravings. Whether that be a potato chip or an orgasm, both tend to make you want another one. And that way lies nothing more than being an animal controlled by our desires. And that's how so much of sin works. It's a pattern of sin. It's living in a way according to the flesh that Paul says leads to death. It's one little thing after another little thing that whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, your sin is leading you towards death. And I'm not just talking about eternity or, um, or hell. What I'm talking about is death in your relationships. 
death in your relationship to God and death in your relationship to others, death in your ability to live with the fruit of the spirit, death in your ability to be able to live in the kingdom of God. Whether you are a Christian or not today, your sin is killing you. And as the Puritan John Owen so famously wrote, we as human beings are called to this work, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You know, it's interesting. The early church was actually known deeply for its unwillingness to promote or operate with any form of violence. And that was in a violent Roman culture. Jesus himself actively spoke against militaristic modes of moving forward the kingdom of God. And he himself practiced non-violence, even to the point of his own death on a Roman cross. The Bible does not seem all that interested in Christians being a violent or aggressive people. And yet whenever it talks about our sin, it talks about warfare. Ephesians 6, it says, for our struggle or some translations for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then it goes on to talk about the armor of God, military illustrations. That the battle against sin, even for us as a non-violent people, is a violence against the sin in our lives. My friends, today, if it feels like the sin that you're battling is exhausting, it's because it is. It's because it's warfare. It's because you're fighting against a force that is fighting against you. And you might be here today as a follower of Jesus and say, I get that. I hear you. I want to kill my sin. I don't want to be enslaved to it. I don't want to walk according to my flesh. But the question is, how? Because for most of us, and more than likely the majority of those of you who are listening to this message right now, you don't need to be convinced that your sin is killing you. Like, you know what your sin is doing to your marriage. You know what your sin is doing to your relationships. You know what your sin is doing to erode your soul. But the question isn't whether or not we need to kill our sin. The question is how? How do we put our sin to death? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Okay, how do I kill my sin? Because guilt and shame won't work. To go back to the illustration of the car, I remember anytime I had a struggle with my car, I started to do this thing where I just slam stuff. You know, and any guy who's ever tried to build Ikea furniture knows what I'm talking about, where maybe if I just slam it a little harder, I'll sort it out. And you know in your sin, that kind of guilt and that kind of shame, it just does not work. And and willpower, maybe it works to a point. Wiggle the key a little bit to get the ignition to turn. Pump the gas a little bit to get a little bit in there and the car might start, but it's not working as it intended to. Willpower can get you somewhere, but it can only get you so far. So what does Paul tell us is the only way that we can actually fight, that we can actually win in our battle against sin? Well, he says it right here in Romans verse 8. 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is Paul's answer? What is our only weapon? What is our only hope in the battle against our sin? The Spirit. It is by the Spirit who comes and lives in the hearts of every person who puts their faith in Jesus, the member of the Trinity, our God who has come to live in us because of what Jesus has done that takes us not just from willpower, not from guilt and shame, but actually to the root of where our sin comes from. 
that actually the spirit at work within our minds and our hearts and our bodies is going deeper to discover not just the behavior that needs to change, but the motivation behind that behavior. Think about it, sexual sin. You can tell yourself you're not going to sin sexually anymore, that you're not going to look at that thing on the internet, that you're not going to do what you want to do. But, but one, I wonder, have you ever asked the question, what is it that you're trying to fulfill? What lack in your life and your heart are you trying to fill with that image on the internet or with that encounter with someone who you've not covenanted yourself in marriage to? Any addiction to a substance, what hole are you trying to fill? What pain are you trying to numb? And whether it's alcohol or drugs or simply an order at McDonald's, like the question is, what are you trying to fill with that thing? Greed. You can say to yourself, I don't want to be greedy. I want to be a generous person. But you've, you ever ask the question, why am I so afraid to not have enough money? Why am I so fearful that God will not provide for me? A few um, days ago, um, Jalisa and I were chatting and, and I'd just been irritable about some stuff going on in my world and, and, and all these kind of things. And, and I'd just been grumpy. And every time Jalisa kind of called me on it or asked me about it, I just gone, okay, okay, I need to stop. I get it, I get it. I'll stop being grumpy. I'll stop being irritable. And then she asked me this like brutal question that I had not actually thought about. She said, where is this coming from? And I was like, no, 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 okay, I know. I'm not going to be grumpy. I'm not going to be irritable. She said, no, 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 I, I get it. You keep saying that. But can you think about where this grumpiness and where this irritability and where this anger is coming from? Because it's not going to go away until you discover where it's coming from. You can try to conquer your sin through guilt, shame, or even willpower, and it might actually change your behavior. But much like telling you don't think about the color green right now or don't think about an elephant right now makes you think about that very thing, it is very hard to continue on killing our sin simply by willpower, simply by saying no instead of asking why. And this is how the Holy Spirit works his way into our lives to go down to the root of what's going on in our hearts and go beyond behavior modification. Behavior modification may work for a time, but it will never truly slay your sin. Maybe it will numb it. Maybe it will distract from it. Maybe you'll trade in one sin for another more acceptable sin. But you cannot kill a weed with a lawnmower. You have to pluck it up by the root. You cannot heal a broken bone with a Band-Aid. You need surgery. And we are so thankful to Jesus because that is what the Holy Spirit who indwells us does. Verse 14, here's what Paul writes. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. One commentator points out that all the work of the Holy Spirit can really be boiled down to two specific acts and specific desires that the Holy Spirit has in your life and my life. Two aims through which every ministry, movement, and manifestation of the Spirit is actually after. One is to point our eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ. To, as the author of Hebrews says, fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to see not only who he is, but what he has done that in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that we can be amazed, not only at the fact that we have been saved, but at the beauty of who our God is. And secondly, beyond the beauty of Christ, that the Holy Spirit works to bring about the assurance of our adoption, 
to speak to our hearts. And as Paul will say, to testify with our spirit that we have been adopted into God's family, that the veil is torn. The thing that separates you from God is no longer there, that Satan is defeated, that sin does not get the last word, but that we have been welcomed home by a father who loves us. And that all the things that the Holy Spirit does, of which there are many, the spiritual gifts as they play themselves out in our church at work to edify believers and encourage people and challenge us. Miracles of people being healed or miracles, whatever those things might look like. Encounters that you may have that the Holy Spirit brings about in worship or in prayer where you sense a tangible um, place of God's presence among a group or gathering of people or when God speaks to your heart that Jesus himself says the Spirit will bring comfort and conviction. All of those things boil down to seeing the beauty of Jesus and for us to remember that we have been adopted by God. And it all plays to this core work of the spirit that draws us to Jesus himself. Here's how Timothy Keller describes this process when he taught on Jesus's teaching on the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. He says this, on the night before he died, Jesus told his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. And when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. John 16, 13 to 14. See, the Spirit does not make us wise in some kind of magical way, giving us little nudges or insider tips to help us in whatever little decisions we need to make. Rather, the Holy Spirit makes Jesus Christ a living and bright reality that transforms our character, that gives us new inner peace and poise, giving us clarity and humility and boldness and contentment and courage. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, not to make us comfortable, not to give us a fallback to every decision, not to give us cozy vibes or make a worship service seem really cool or really special. In the words of one pastor, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you will never be more spiritual than you are right now. Whether here sitting in church or whether at your home watching TV, the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in you. You cannot level up how much the Spirit is alive in you. You cannot get God to love you more. None of that is possible. But notice what Paul said. He said, do not fall back into a spirit of fear. And he's speaking here to the Christians in Rome, and this should be encouraging to us. That, that Paul is writing and he's saying, even when you've experienced God, even when you've come to know Christ, even when you've received the Holy Spirit and the God of the universe lives in you, you have the propensity to fall back into fear. I have the propensity to fall back into fear. That we can fall back into the spirit of slavery and fear. And that spirit that does not point us to the beauty of Jesus or to the assurance of our adoption into God's family, but to the depth of our guilt to the weight of our shame, to the fear of what, what does God really think about me? Does God like me? It's the spirit that the son in the parable of the lost son had when he came to his senses. Do you remember in Luke 15, the son goes, he takes everything his father has, but, but he realizes it's a mess without his father. And he comes to his senses. And here's what he says, Luke 15, starting in verse 17. When the son came to his senses, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I know what I'll do. I'll get up, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So would you make me like one of your hired workers? 
And I wonder for how many of us are we approaching God in this way? With our sin, with our brokenness and our shame, we are approaching God saying, I'm not worthy to be part of the family of God, that we've fallen back into that slavery to fear, that we're approaching God like a hired hand instead of his child, that you're coming to God as if you are a pawn on the chessboard, a servant to an angry manager that could lash out or fire you the second you make a mistake or he becomes impatient. Here's my question. How do you relate to God? Like when you think about God, what kind of emotions come up in you? Is it a sense of peace and security in his love and his care? Or is there anxiety that you're not doing enough? Is there fear that maybe you've messed this thing up? Is there a wonder of, of maybe God loves me, but does he really like me? There's a wonder of if God really knew about all my sin or what I'm struggling with, if, if people around me knew, would I even be welcomed in the family of God? But just before his description of the Holy Spirit in John 16, Jesus himself tells us that this is not how we are invited to relate to God the Father. John 15, starting in verse 15, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I have appointed you to go and to produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. See, my friends, through Christ, we have been invited in. Not in a sheepish and uncomfortable way, but in the fullness of what it means to become a friend of Christ and an adoptive son of God the Father. This is what's called the theology of the doctrine of adoption. And it's this incredibly important idea that you and I are welcomed into God's family as sons. And now many places in the Bible, you can take this idea of sons and just expand it out. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, all that kind of thing. But you actually can't do that here because what Paul's referring to is this Roman concept, not a son. Um, it has to be a son, not a daughter. He's using gender specific language because he's referring to an heir has, who has been chosen by a ruler. This was a common practice among powerful men in Roman culture to adopt a son, one who he would see as taking over, as stepping in, as becoming his heir. That sonship is a legal standing, not simply a nice idea. Here's how one historian puts it. In the first century, an adopted son was a legal position. It was an adoption of a son deliberately chosen by the father to perpetuate his name, inherit his estate. He was not inferior in status to a son born in an ordinary way. And in fact, usually the adopted son enjoyed the father's affection more because he would be the one to take the whole estate and he would follow more clearly in his father's footsteps. What does this mean? What is Paul trying to remind us of here? That none of us are born into this. That none of us are born into God's family. That each one of us, as we approach God as father, do so by adoption. The family you were born into does not make you a Christian. What your parents did or where they went to church has nothing to do with whether or not you've been adopted in to God's family. All faith in Jesus is adoption based, but here's the beauty of it. We've all been invited in. And it's in this place where we've been invited that we get to relate to and experience God in a new and a greater way as our dad as our father. The text here says, Abba, father. 
Now you might wonder why the distinction, why keep this old school uh, historical word in the midst of the English translation? Well, as many have pointed out, Paul here is breaking from writing in Greek, which most of the letter of Romans was written in, and he's using this term Abba, which is actually Aramaic. It's not the Greek language, but it would have been known and it would have been a scandalous thing to call Yahweh the God of creation. See, this term Abba is like a Near Eastern equivalent of what infants use to cry out for a parent or a grandparent or someone who's safe. It's not just an affectionate term, which has been pointed out many, many times, like daddy or dad or whatever it may be. It's one of complete dependence. It's interesting. One commentator points out that Abba is not that much different than any other term we see infants use for parents. Think about it, right? Abba, Dada, Mama, Gaga, Baba. All these words that this commentator notes can be said without teeth. That a child who has not yet developed an ability to speak can call out Because there is something in every single human being that is ingrained onto our hearts, a longing that we have from the beginning of our lives for something very simple but very necessary, for love and for security, to be fully known and fully accepted, to be safe. And what Paul is saying to the Romans and to us is that this longing can be satisfied in God. You can actually trust God in this way, the same way a little child can trust their mother or father. That he, God, has adopted you and that your knowledge and experience of him is not based on your goodness or your worth, but based on his chosen love for you. And why does this matter so much? Because when each of us was that little child, when each of us was that infant, when we cried out dada or mama or gaga or whatever it may have been, we eventually grow up and find that no matter how good our parents might have been, they could never fulfill that need for complete love and complete security and complete complete safety. Our parents, no matter how good and how kind and how loving they are, will never be able to provide us with the fullness of love and the security that God himself offers. Some of you are here today and you hold deep amounts of pain. That there are things that your parents have said to you. There are things that your parents may have done to you that have completely destroyed relationships that your parent who was meant to be safe was not safe, that your parent who was meant to protect you did not protect you, that your parent who who was meant to care for you well did not care for you well, and even the best parents had their moments, had their failures. Some of you are here and, and you've actually done the opposite. You've idolized your families. You've expected them to be the place where you can fulfill the deepest longing of your hearts, whether your parents or whether you as a parent looking at your kid and you're bitter because your parents have not lived up to the expectations of what you think they should be. Or you feel deep amounts of shame because you as a parent, you look at your kids and you realize that you're not the parent that you wish you were, that no matter how hard you try, you haven't been able to do it perfectly. Some of you are here and regardless of relationship with parents, you just refuse to engage in real relationship with anyone because you don't wanna get hurt because you don't wanna have to trust someone and be vulnerable in that way. But, But what this passage is pointing us to is an understanding that even the best earthly parents are just substitutes to point us to the only one who can truly provide all the love, all the safety, and all the security that we truly need. 
that that's what we're invited into by being adopted into God's family. But by the spirit, we aren't just adopted into God's family. We're also affirmed again and again and again, because like so many of us throughout our lives, we fall back into our old ways. That even as we follow Jesus, even as we seek to experience the spirit, we fall back into that spirit of slavery, but the spirit at work in our lives, in our hearts, calls us and woos us back to reality. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now it's interesting, Paul's kind of repeating himself, but not really. Before he said, you are God's children because you are led by the spirit. That is a fact. Now he is saying, and the spirit's going to keep testifying that and testifying that and saying that again and again and again and again. That when we fall back into a spirit of slavery, it is the work of the spirit to do what? Point us to the beauty of Jesus and remind us of our adoption as sons and as daughters. I remember my car broke down once. I, my car breaks down a lot. I don't know how to take care of a car, apparently. And I remember calling my dad and feeling so much shame and so much embarrassment and so much fear. Because what if this means my dad's disappointed in me? What if this means, uh, you know, he's going to be irritated at me? He's going to think less of me? He's going to know that I'm not really a man who can fix his car himself? I remember my dad driving out from Kamloops where he was to chase where my car had broken down and bringing everything that was needed and bringing water and bringing antifreeze and bringing oil and bringing everything that might be needed in order to help me, in order to save me. And when he got there, he didn't look at me and say, you're such an idiot. He got there and he said, I'm here to help, son because he's a father who loved me. And then Paul carries on in verse 17. He says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. See, Paul doesn't avoid suffering. In fact, the rest of Romans 8, he's going to actually embrace and spend the chunk of the chapter talking about that very thing. How do we engage suffering in our spiritual walk? So I won't get into that here, but what he is pointing us to is the reality is that our place with God is secure. That whatever you are going through, whatever you are facing, that you have a father who has adopted you and who loves you. That Christ is your older brother. That Christ is the one who has sacrificed himself for you. That that work is already done. And that through that work, the spirit has come to live in you and is bringing about transformation. How? By pointing you to the beauty of Jesus and to the affirmation that you have been adopted into God's family. See, where the Holy Spirit grabs hold of us and reorients us out of a spirit of slavery, out of a desire to walk back into those sins, into those things, into those places where we've numbed ourselves from what God is trying to do in our lives that we're actually invited to stand and experience the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the word for Holy Spirit in Hebrew is ruach, and it's this word that means energy or breath or wind. And here's the thing about the wind. You can't control it. You can only get outside and experience it. And so may I invite you today to position your heart and your mind that you might experience what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life to point you to the beauty of Jesus and to remind you of your adoption into God's family. Let me pray for you today. Father, thank you so much. <laughs> that we can come to you. That our longing to be held, to be known, to be loved, to be safe can be met in you. Lord Jesus, that we are not loved based on ourselves, 
but based on your adoption of us. May each one of us here today experience the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to actually know, as Paul will later write, how deep and how wide, how far Christ's love is for us. Lord Jesus, we invite you to move and work in our lives right now. We know, Holy Spirit, that we cannot coerce you. We cannot command you. We can only receive what you want to do in our lives. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do what you want to do in our lives. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that work in us and to do that work through us, that we might conquer our sin, that we might walk in step with your spirit, and that we might, as Jesus invited us, live as friends of God who bear fruit and abide in him. We pray all these things in your name, King Jesus. Amen.